Jim Bennett. Welcome back to Mormon Discussion. How are you this morning? I'm doing well. Yourself? Good, good. Uh, glad to continue this conversation. Last, uh, maybe I should give a synopsis for the listeners who just happened, those three people who accidentally just fall, find themselves in episode three of this series. Uh, we are sitting down with Jim Bennett. Jim Bennett has uh, issued a response uh, to Jeremy Runnels in his CES letter. Uh, in part one and two, we covered... Uh, uh, other pieces of ground that I would suggest to to those three people that you that you go back and listen to those two episodes before you jump into part three. But today, uh, and in fact, we started it last time, and at the end of episode two, we started talking about the Book of Abraham. And uh, today, we want to kind of jump into that more fully. And, and so, uh, last time I shared kind of the brief story. I'll try to give maybe just the highlights again. Uh, Michael Chandler comes into Kirtland. Uh, mid-1830s, brings with him some mummies and some papyri. Uh, Joseph Smith in the church purchased those. Joseph uh, then begins the translation of the book of Abraham. We get quotes like, uh, these are the writings of Abraham. Uh, Quotes like, these are written by his own hand. We end up with this translation. The papyri are lost. And then in the 1960s, at least part of these this papyri, um, these these uh, papyri fragments resurface. Uh, what we have, the church has those in their possession today. What we have does not, according to Egyptology standards, translate into the Book of Abraham, and hence the critics see it as a nail in the coffin. Uh, that what Joseph claimed to be doing and what actually is there is not one in the same. Uh, the apologists have countered that perhaps there's a missing scroll, uh, and there is some, I think, evidence for that, although I, I don't personally find it very strong. Uh, the next fallback on the apologetic side was to create uh, a catalyst theory, which essentially says, you're right, we do have the papyri that Joseph thought he was working with, uh, but Somehow, Joseph thought he was working with it, but really wasn't, and hence God just used the papyri as a catalyst to give him uh, the inspired book of Abraham. Uh, And then, I know I've seen in some circles, and I thought you had mentioned it in your response, this idea of uh, perhaps something being, this document, this papyri being repurposed. In other words, same idea, we admit these are the right papyri, but rather than meaning what Egyptologists know them to mean, which they do, somewhere along the way, somebody working on behalf of Heavenly Father uh, repurposed those uh, facsimiles, repurposed those uh, hieroglyphics to mean the Book of Abraham. And so it's kind of like having a a secret decoder pen and uh, the paper with the invisible ink on it, and only those people who have those tools can then know what that document is supposed to say. Um, I, I want, and, I, and I wanted to at least start off our conversation where we ended last time, Jim, which was uh, the trouble I see, and this is one of those issues, whereas in the first two episodes there may have been some times where I granted a little more space and said like, yeah, you know, that's fair. I really struggle with the book of Abraham, and I think it's, I think it's because it feels to me like the evidence is so strong that Joseph is 
at least claiming to be working with the papyri. Now, whether he believed it or not, we'll never know in terms of getting inside his head. We can debate it and we can argue the facts. But what we what I see is somebody who claims to be working with that papyri, claims that papyri to be a specific thing. The Egyptian alphabet and grammar, at least on the surface when we look at it, appears to be uh, Joseph and his scribes uh, writing down the hieroglyphics off of the papyri that we have, taking a symbol, putting it down, then writing the text of the book of Abraham to the right of it, then taking the next symbol in order, putting it down and writing the text that's uh, next to, you know, the, the text of the book of Abraham that it supposedly associates with next to it, and then moving in order. Uh, I, I spoke to Brian uh, Haglid and uh, some of those papers are in Joseph Smith's own handwriting, though the majority of it is in the writing of his scribes. We at least have some of it in his handwriting. Uh, we also have Abraham 1, 12 through 14, which which to me is the strongest piece of evidence um, because, well, I should say this too, you also have the facsimiles, which Joseph attributes meaning to. He takes each of the symbols in those facsimiles and associates what they mean. Uh, apologists have argued that there's a, a couple of hits. I, I think they're weak, but they, but the, again, I want to acknowledge those. That's Sobek, the crocodile god, and the four canopic jars. Um, but he also got a lot of things wrong, a lot of things. And he even fails to connect the four canopic jars from one facsimile to another. He calls the four canopic jars on another facsimile something completely different. He didn't, he didn't seem to recognize that they were the same, um, the same thing on those two documents. But again, Abraham 1, 12 through 14, has Abraham himself talking to the reader or the translator and acknowledging that what he's talking about is found at the uh, commencement of the facsimile and the essentially the hieroglyphics that followed it. Uh, and we know which facsimile Joseph attributes to that story, uh, jo, you know, Abraham on the lion couch. And so it feels as if the evidence is overwhelming that Joseph believes he's working with the very papyri that we have uh, and that that he thinks he's translating that papyri into the book of Abraham, or at least he wants others to believe that's the case. And I guess we'll use that kind of as our starting off point. That's me rambling a bunch, hoping the listener is able to kind of, because this, this is maybe the most complicated issue in all of Mormonism, uh, to explain and have people understand. But with that said, uh, I'll turn the time over to you and get some of your thoughts uh, on the book of Abraham. Well, um, so since our last conversation, uh, at the end of the last conversation, you quoted Brian Haglid and his his announcement that he finds the apologetic arguments, and specifically those of John Gee and Kerry Molstein, to be abhorrent. And that that really struck me. And so from the time last time we spoke to now, I've been trying to dig through Brian Haglid. And, uh, you know, I watched the presentation that he made to uh, the Maxwell Institute that you sent me a link to. And I've, I've also read the introduction to the Joseph Smith papers that uh, presumably he wrote with um, Robin Jensen. And it's, 
it, 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 it strikes me that, and maybe this is this is. You say you have spoken to Brian Haglund. I don't know him. I, I I wasn't really familiar with him before our last conversation. Um, but he he never gives the reasons for his abhorrence. And and in the message that you'd sent me in, and I think in the last time you you talked about this, you said this blows a huge hole in the catalyst theory and it decimates the missing scroll theory. And I read through what he actually says now in both that introduction and in that presentation and don't see evidence of either one of those things. Particularly, it, it seems like he's arguing uh, the catalyst theory. Uh, Robin Jensen, at, at the 47-minute mark of that pre presentation, which you'd asked me to sort of start at, points out that the description of facsimile 3 where Joseph Smith says the characters above the, the head of King Pharaoh give his name, and Robin Jensen says, oh, no, it doesn't give his name, and, and that's not true. So, and then he says, so if you have problems with the book of Abraham, you shouldn't just say you're not praying hard enough. And then he gets into a whole bunch of conversation about seer stones, and I, I, and I, and as I watch all that, and I, and I listen to what you're saying here, it, it's. I think when we start talking about the Book of Abraham, everybody is talking about a whole bunch of different things, and trying to bring it all back into exactly what this is and how we should interpret it, and what and what our assumptions ought to be about the Book of Abraham. It's it's a very tall order, and and I've also I've read through. Um, John Gee's book, An Introduction to the Book of Abraham, that I probably is sort of the consensus of the LDS position. It's not the official position of the church, but in terms of anybody that's actually addressed these issues head on, I think that's probably where most people on the church's side of the issue would, would land. And uh, although Hagelin has now said that John Gee's arguments are abhorrent, so you know, I'm, I'm sort of left to wrestle with that. But I, as I was reading through a bunch of things that John Gee had said, one of the things that he said that I thought was really remarkable was that he does not have a testimony of the book of Abraham. Which is, and he said, I, Abraham does not come with its own version of Moroni's promise. And I thought that was really interesting because a lot of these people, and this is kind of where I land on the book of Abraham. Um, uh, Jeremy Runnels in the CES letter, after he goes through the book of Abraham and he goes through the Kinderhook plates, I don't know if we'll talk about that now or later, but he says, okay, so the book of Abraham is proven to be a fraud. The Kinderhook plates are proven to be a fraud. So why would I buy the book of Mormon? Why would I buy a third translation? Uh, why would you buy a third car from a dealer who's already sold you two clunkers? And my reaction to that was, no, it's the Book of Mormon that came first. It's the Book of Mormon that provides the tangible miracle at the center of the restoration in which people's testimonies are grounded. It's the Book of Mormon that is the keystone. So when I approach the Book of Abraham and I look at all of these things, uh, I, I'm coming at it with a testimony of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon and the truthfulness of Joseph Smith's prophetic calling and so I'm willing to put that in that context 
that I wouldn't be able to put it into if the Book of Abraham were the only evidence of Joseph Smith's um, prophetic mission uh, independent of the Book of Mormon. So whenever we do this, I, that, that's kind of where I'm coming from, is that the arguments that you're making and the arguments that are made against the Book of Abraham, uh, I am considering them with the backdrop of I have considerable evidence that Joseph Smith is indeed a prophet, that Joseph Smith does indeed have the power to translate ancient records, and I'm also looking at it in the context, not just the Book of Mormon, but Joseph Smith there are ancient documents that the church accepts as scripture that we never, that the church also says we never had the originals. You know, Doctrine and Covenants section 7, which is the revelation about John the Beloved, which is supposedly a translation of an ancient parchment, where Joseph Smith never had the ancient parchment as far as we know. We saw it in vision. The book of Moses, we're told, is a restoration of an ancient book written by Moses, and yet we never have parchment or we never have papyri or anything else that has the original of the book of Moses. So it, it, in that context, I, I look at the book of Abraham, and a lot of the work that's done on the book of Abraham by people who are defending the church's position, particularly Hugh Nibley, is he tries to, he, he, he says, if you look at the book of Abraham, um, independent of whatever translation process was used to create it, and you treat it as an ancient document, there are some remarkable things about it, and that uh, the people who are trying to discredit it don't pay any attention to. Robert Rittner, who I think is the most credible Egyptologist who's examined the Book of Abraham, wrote what he called his rebuttal to the church's essay on the subject, and he just gets into, well, this translation process is clearly a fraud and it's a mess. But there are so many things in the essay that he just completely doesn't talk about. He doesn't talk about the plains of Ulashem. He doesn't talk about how it's consistent with uh, Abrahamic traditions that weren't known at the time of Joseph Smith that have surfaced since then, uh, that give it the marks of antiquity. He just kind of ignores that and says, well, since the translation process is such a mess, then uh, there's no possible way this could be ancient, and, and he, does, he doesn't even address it. Uh, he goes for what he, what he considers to be the low-hanging fruit, and so in, in doing all that, I can come back and look at the translation of the Book of Abraham, but, I, but uh, the context I'm looking at it in, I, I love the Book of Abraham, particularly because of the doctrine that it teaches. There, there are so many profound things in the Book of Abraham that you don't find anywhere else in Mormonism the doctrine that we are co-eternal with God, the idea that, uh, the whole idea that we were pre-existent, uh, that, that's rooted in the book of Abraham and nowhere else. Uh, you get hints of it in the book of Moses, you get hints of it in other scripture, but it's the book of Abraham that makes that, that clear. And so I'm looking at it, I'm looking at what we have, and just as the book of Mormon you know, if the Book of Mormon is translated from a rock in the hat, uh, or it's translated from him looking directly at characters, or it's translated from him with using the Urim and Thummim, we have the Book of Mormon, and the Book of Mormon is a remarkable thing, independent of how it was produced. And that's kind of how I see the Book of Abraham, is that we have it, uh, it has marks of antiquity, it's remarkable, it, its doctrine is profound and resonates with me. 
and it's coming from the the backdrop of the the evidence that Joseph Smith is a prophet that comes from the Book of Mormon and that sort of thing. So so I I, I admit that all of that colors my reaction to the translation. So if I go back to the translation and I look at all of the very valid issues that you're raising with regard to the translation and the questions about the translation, I'm coming at it from the perspective of, okay, Joseph Smith is a prophet, and therefore, and I have evidence that Joseph Smith is a prophet from the Book of Mormon and from these other experiences. And so how do I apply that? to what we now know about the book of Abraham. And so I'm, I'm giving it more allowances than I would if I wasn't coming at it from that perspective. So that probably sounds like a dodge, and, and maybe to some degree it is, but I think that's where all of the people who are looking at the book of Abraham are, tr are trying to reconcile it with, okay, the book of Abraham uh, has these marvelous doctrines, it has these marks of antiquity, and it's coming in the context of Joseph Smith being a prophet, so I'm going to give it, uh, give it more credence than I would otherwise if this were, this were the only thing Joseph Smith had ever produced. Gotcha. So, and I, I want to make, I want, again, I want to be friendly and I want to make space that we can set off to the side like, okay, maybe it's a inspired sacred text of some sort, uh, and I want to set that off to the side and say, I don't want to debate that. I, and, and I think it's important for the listener that we discuss some of the, the data and the facts and at least sure. get your two cents on kind of where you stand. So I, I'm, I'm going to acknowledge up front that you come down on, look, the Book of Mormon's inspired no ifs, ands, or buts in my mind. I've had a spiritual experience. I know that book is true. And hence... Even as the data seems to lean one way with the Book of Abraham, I'm still going to make space that it's a sacred text, just like the Book of Mormon, even if it's translated differently or given in some different manner. Okay, so I'm going to set that off to the side, but I want to get back to at least getting your two cents on. Do you agree that Abraham 1, 12 through 14 seem to impose Abraham himself telling the readers that the papyri we have is what Joseph Smith is working with, that that becomes the book of Abraham? Uh, I don't think it's that simple a question or an answer. Uh, so uh, let me back up just a little bit. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not an Egyptologist. I, I can't translate the book of Abraham uh, from, from Egyptian. And... Joseph Smith was not an Egyptologist, and I don't think anybody was saying Joseph Smith was an Egyptologist. I think everybody who describes the Book of Abraham translation insists that Joseph Smith required revelation to do it. And what's, what my perspective on the Book of Abraham is that Joseph Smith, by this point, Joseph Smith was trying very hard to learn languages. He had already started the study of Hebrew. He wanted to learn Egyptian. He sort of wanted to crack Egyptian. But Joseph Smith never made the claim that this translation was being made independent of Revelation. Uh, the, the scribes even talk about the fact that, that, that they talk about a seer stone being used to, to, in order to do this. And so it strikes me that the translation process for the Book of Abraham was probably very much like the translation process of the Book of Mormon. 
the difference being that Joseph at this point decided he wanted to go back and say, all right, well, I want to match up uh, a scholarly translation with a translation that comes from Revelation. And so I think that when, you, when you're looking at the book of Abraham, I think, for instance, Joseph believed that this was an autograph scroll, that Abraham had written this scroll. I think Joseph believed that. Uh, it's clearly not true. I think Joseph was wrong. Uh, and, and I think that, so that's kind of a lot of the things when you get into the book of Abraham, you're, you're, Joseph's assumptions, I think, make their way into how the book of Abraham has been presented to the world. But even if, if Abraham had written, you know, in an ancient scroll, this is something I'm writing with my own hand, that would appear in every copy of the scroll. Uh, from that point on, it appears in the Pearl of Great Price now. Nobody who has a copy of the Book of Abraham and the Pearl of Great Price and reads, this was written by my own ham, assumes that Abraham showed up and typed up their personal copy of the Pearl of Great Price. Uh, that's, that, that's not how it works. These, are, these were clearly copies of copies that have been passed down for thousands of years. And so, so when I look at that, I, I, I think... Uh, it's very clear to me that Joseph Smith's assumptions with regard to what he was doing, Joseph Smith believed he was translating papyri. I, I, I think there is still room for the idea that what was on the papyri was on other scrolls. We know we, we are missing a great deal of material. We are missing facsimiles two and three particularly, so two-thirds of the facsimiles have been lost. We know that there were two scrolls. There are eyewitnesses to scrolls, not just uh, Joseph F. Smith remembering a childhood memory. We have a woman who had written letters that talked about a long scroll. You know, so so there, there's a bunch of material there, and there, there's a bunch of things we simply do not know. And I'm willing to give Joseph more of the benefit of the doubt than I would be if I weren't convinced that the Book of Mormon is indeed an ancient record. So that's kind of where I fall down on that. So, and I get that. And again, I'm going to kind of push a little bit. So if we get to, if we turn to Abraham chapter one, verse 12. Right. And it came to pass that the priests laid violence upon me, that they might slay me also, as they did those virgins upon this altar. Right. And that you may have a knowledge of this altar. I will refer you to the representation at the commencement of this record. And that, and that happens to be the same representation. Uh, it, let me put it a different that's way. That's facsimile one. Right. That, that Joseph um, seems to overwhelmingly declare and impose and translate facsimile number one as the representation that Abraham is there speaking of, Correct. Uh, yes, correct. Okay. Uh, so then verse 14, that you may have an understanding of these gods, I have given you the fashion of them in the figures at the beginning, which manner of figures is called the Chaldeans, and then I don't know how to pronounce, Relinos, which signifies hieroglyphics. Um, it seems, and again, I'm not asking you to say like, look, I know Abraham's mind, I know exactly what he meant, I know exactly what pictures he's pointing to. I'm only asking if it seems by far the most rational and reasonable conclusion looking at this issue alone 
to say Abraham seems to be pointing at facsimile 1 and the hieroglyphics that follow it. Yes, he does. Okay. That's, and and that, I think that's important because I think listeners, when, when we get into these subjects, it's easy for us to try and stay a distance away from acknowledging those things so as to make it as much of a space for those who are struggling to hold on to faith. And I don't want to rip that faith out, but what I do want to do is be clear about what some of this evidence seems to indicate and what seems to be the most reasonable, rational conclusion. And I think it's important to push you on these because I, I deeply believe deep down you also think that what I'm about, what I'm, what I'm pushing in this particular point, and then also in some of the points after, maybe to a lesser degree of strength, but that you would also agree that that is the most reasonable conclusion to make on those points when those points are considered uh, on their own. And I give the caveat that you also would acknowledge that not necessarily is the most reasonable conclusion the right one in every instance throughout you know the history of humankind and this this beautiful planet we live on. So I, I grant that there are things that don't line up, that things that happen that are not what we expected to be the most reasonable thing to happen. So I grant that, but I, I just want to get your feelings on each of these points of data. Um, your understanding is that Joseph Smith and his scribes, who put who put words in his mouth as well, and I grant that that can be messy too, but that it seems as though Joseph Smith believes that uh, these are the this papyri is the writings of Abraham written by his own hand. And again, because of Abraham one twelve through fourteen, I'm speaking specifically of the papyri that we have. Uh, yeah, I would. I, I, I think Joseph absolutely believed uh, things that were not accurate with regard to this. That does not... I, I, That's okay. I, I, like, again, I, I think the listener is not going to go like, aha, look, Jim just said that, you know, this is the way it is and there's no other solution and so let's throw it on the bag. The listeners are, the listeners are in various stages of their faith transition, but... But they're not naive to these issues. Most members of the church are absolutely clueless to uh, any of the background story of the book of Abraham. That's not going to be true of this listenership. They're going to understand the complexity of this issue, if for the only reason because Radio Free Mormon and I just did like a four-hour podcast where we explained in detail all of the complexities of this issue. So these, these guys are coming to this more informed, and they're looking... They're not looking for these soft surface answers. They want us to dive into some of these specifics, if sure, that makes sense. Sure, I, I, I want to dive in a little bit. I remember having a conversation about 10 years ago, and, and it was really the first time I was introduced to some of these Book of Abraham issues. Uh, I was having a conversation with an architect who had done a lot of work for the church, and I was working with him on a, on a different project, and he started talking about how he was he was planning on leaving the church over the Book of Abraham, uh, specifically facsimile one. Uh, how he insisted that facsimile one had been altered, that the um, the the priest that is sacrificing Abraham in facsimile one is supposed to be Anubis. Anubis. I'm not, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I've only read it, uh, but the jackal-headed god. And he said, in every other facsimile of, of this version, 
it's a jackal-headed god, and and uh, Joseph Smith changed it into a priest and gave him a human head, and it's all nonsense, and that shook me up a little bit, and it was interesting, and when I read the CES letter, uh, it actually, and, and I wrote this in my reply to Jeremy Runnels, I said, I want to thank you for sort of settling one of the things that concerned me about the Book of Abraham. Because he points out, he tries to point out the same thing, and he shows this sort of modern recreation of what facsimile one is supposed to look like, even though he can't give me any actual facsimile in antiquity or anything that's been found that does look like that. But there's a modern recreation of what facsimile is supposed to look like that he sticks into the CES letter. And then he shows me all of the other couch scenes that can be found in antiquity, and all of them, instead of showing a live person on the altar, it shows a sarcophagus, you know, one of these King Tut mummy type things. And the, every single one of those, the, whatever is on the, the couch, it's a dead person. And it's very clear that in the Joseph Smith papyri, and in fact, simile one, that the victim on the couch is alive. That's a human being, and, and, and that's extraordinarily rare. And I look at that and go, okay, there's something more going on here. This is really interesting. And, and then I got into Hugh Dibley looking at all of this. And facsimile one uh, is something that is not something that is attached to the book of breathings in any other kind of setting. It really is remarkable. And they sort of just try to gloss over all of that and say, okay, well, no, no, really, it's just like all of these other couch scenes. It's just like all of these other everything else. And it isn't. It's different. It's unique. It's remarkable. And so as I go through that and I look at the book of Abraham and I try to figure out, okay, what do I think is going on here? How do I think this has been translated? What do I think is happening? Uh, the Jim Bennett theory of the book of Abraham, which is based solely on my own personal whatever, and I have absolutely no academic credentials to back any of it up, but the way I see it, is and, and I talk a little bit about this in my reply, I, I do not see it as if, um, you know, this is a cipher or a secret code that, the, that, that if we go back into ancient Egyptian and we read these hieroglyphics, that these hieroglyphics actually meant something else or anything else. But what I see it as is that ancient symbols from the time of Abraham have been reappropriated over and over and over again in a bunch of different settings over the course of thousands of years. And that Joseph Smith is essentially digging through all of that and you and and finding the original message that was attached to these symbols. I mean the, the original ideas. And and so it, the facsimiles, particularly, I think, are the symbols we're talking about. Um, and so he's looking at it, and he's finding an ancient interpretation of these that was attached to ideas. And so it's kind of a mix of a catalyst theory, maybe a missing scroll theory. I, I mean, I, I am not convinced, for instance, that if we were to find magically any kind of a missing scroll, if we were to go back and rescue scrolls prior to the Chicago fire, that Egyptologists would find on those scrolls texts that directly corresponds to the Book of Abraham. 
In, in other words, you agree that if we had the missing scrolls, they most likely also don't translate into the book of Abraham if if an Egyptologist sat down with them. Yeah, I do. Right. Okay. I Good. do. I, Good. I mean, the, Good. The, so, so, you know, when we talk about the catalyst theory, uh, I, I don't think there's a clean version of the catalyst theory. That is to say, I, I, I think there is a clean version of the catalyst theory when you look at the book of Moses. You look at the book of Moses, and Joseph Smith is reading the Old Testament, and that is a catalyst for a revelation for a, a, uh, a book that, uh, that, that does not have this, the primary source materials to, right? I mean, the book, the book of Moses, nobody is claiming that the book of Moses comes from some kind of ancient text that Joseph Smith had in his possession. That's a clean catalyst for a revelation that reveals an ancient text. Uh, I think what you have with the papyri is is a catalyst to reveal an ancient text, but the catalyst is sort of this bastardized or or reappropriated symbol that's been passed down for thousands of years. So there is an element of that. There are elements of what that ancient document was in what Joseph Smith got. So you can say, yes, the, the, the papyri to some degree or at some level have material on them, particularly in the facsimiles, that were part of this lost ancient document. But Joseph is restoring the lost ancient document, translating a lost ancient document, the same way he translates Doctrine and Covenants section 7, the same way he translates the Book of Moses, and to some degree the same way he translates the Book of Mormon. Although I would say that the, the plates had characters that would, if scholars could look at them, probably would translate directly into what Joseph translated on the Book of Mormon. But, I mean, that's neither here nor there. That's a, that's a separate issue. But So, so as, as I, I look at the Book of Abraham, I, I look at that, then I also say, okay, what's Joseph's intent here? I mean, Joseph's assumptions may have been wrong, but what's Joseph's intent uh, I, when I was when I was a, a kid, um, one of the a speaker in sacrament meeting gave a talk about dishonesty that has always stuck with me, and he said something that I've never forgotten. He said, "A lie is something done with the intent to deceive." He said, "You can impart true information and still be lying if your intent is to deceive, and by the same token, you can be mistaken and not be lying." And I, I, as I look at Joseph Smith, I, I think it's very difficult to assess the life of Joseph Smith and come to the conclusion that he himself did not believe in his own prophetic calling, that he was engaged in this sort of grand fraud the way I think you can look at L. Ron Hubbard. And L. Ron Hubbard writes notes to himself where he says, all men are your slaves, and he comes down against psychiatric drugs, and then he writes letters to his wife talking about all the psychiatric drugs he's taking. Uh, you, you get the sense that L. Ron Hubbard, and he also talks about how the way to make a lot of money is to start your own religion. You know, L. Ron Hubbard, you could look at that and go, okay, this is a guy who knew that on some level what he's doing is kind of this big scam to get rich. 
Uh, it's very, you know, Zayah Quincy, when he goes to Nauvoo, says he stands helpless before the puzzle that is Joseph Smith, because it's very clear that Joseph Smith believes all of this stuff. And as Joseph Smith... Or, or at least, or at least looks on the outward at convincing of that. Does that make sense? Like, <clears throat> I, I don't know that it's fair to say Joseph believes in himself, but I would say that outwardly to a person who's watching, who's, who's observing to the observer, right. Joseph Smith appears to believe in himself. Yes. Yes. Except, I mean, even Fawn Brody, as you read, no man knows my history. She, she gets into it and she, she says, I don't know when it happens, but it's clear at some point, Joseph convinces himself of his rod. And it's like, it's, it's like, well, okay, Fawn Brody, who's my cousin, by the way. Um, but, uh, you know, Okay, Fon Brody, you don't have any evidence of this other than the evidence that it's clear Joseph seems to believe in what he's doing. Uh, and so you just kind of say, well, he couldn't have believed it when he was per perpetrating the fraud at the beginning. So clearly it had to have happened at somewhere along the line. But that's that's all simply conjecture. And so as you look at what what what's going on with the book of Abraham, Joseph Joseph is gathering in other people to try to say, hey, we have this eight texts. And I have a revelation that's telling me what this text is supposed to say. Hey, what, maybe we can use that to try to figure out the Egyptian language. And, and so you have all of these guys working together. Bushman talks about this in Rough Stone Rolling, is that essentially Joseph's saying, hey, everybody, let's get together and let's crack the Egyptian language and figure out what this means. That's not something that somebody who knows they're perpetrating a fraud would be likely to do. If Joseph knows he's pulling the book of Abraham out of thin air, out of nothing, and making it up, uh, why on earth would he gather other people together to say, okay, well, let's take this thing I made up and match it up with hieroglyphics and see if we can figure out what the Egyptian language means? I mean, that, that, that's, that's not... Uh, that's delusional in a way that doesn't make any sense that's consistent with Joseph Smith's mission and what Joseph Smith did. So I believe the book of Abraham is a revelation to Joseph Smith that Joseph Smith believed in, and Joseph Smith desperately wanted to be able to uh, get academic backing for what he was doing. You know, he was trying very hard to learn these ancient languages and as he gets involved in that, and it tells us some, something about the assumptions of Joseph Smith, uh, but uh, it, it doesn't necessarily it, it doesn't accord with the idea that Joseph Smith is just making this all up, and uh, that there's no no basis for it because he keeps exposing himself to other people and trying to get other people involved in this in a way that an L. Ron Hubbard wouldn't do. I, I mean, so I don't know if that's helpful or if that's at all useful. So, and it is like, I, again, um, I'm willing to at least sit in the same room with folks like you who say, look, I, I can't make sense of this mess either, but, but I think Joseph Smith believed what he was doing was sincere and the book of Abraham on some level is a sacred text to me. And so knowing those two things, um, I don't know what to do with all of this, but 
yet here's the scripture just laying here that I appreciate and find value well, in. That's well, and I, and I want I want to clarify that it's I'm not just saying that the Book of Abraham is inspired fiction or that it's just lovely and I like what it says. Uh, I I genuinely believe the Book of Abraham is an ancient document. I I believe that the Book of Abraham. I believe that that Abraham wrote it. I believe. Uh, you know, so so that may make me a little. I I, I don't know if Brian Haglid would agree with me at this point, but I believe that the way we received it uh, is essentially the same way we received the Book of Moses, which I also believe is an ancient document written by Moses. I believe that Doctrine and Covenant section seven was written by John the Beloved, but I believe that the way they got to us in English through Joseph Smith uh, also included a number of assumptions by Joseph Smith that were likely incorrect. I think Dan Vogel talks about what he calls the idiot prophet theory that, that, <laughs> and I don't know if I, I think that's probably a little harsher than I would be, but, but Joseph Smith may very well have believed he was translating papyri that he wasn't necessarily translating, that he was getting a revelation, but as he was doing it, he was thinking, okay, well, this must match with this papyri and I'm doing this. And, and, and so, um, you know, I, so I, I just want to, I, I just want to be on record as saying that I just don't think the book of Abraham is sort of something nice or something inspiring. I don't think, and that comes back, I think to people who advocate for a theory that the book of Mormon is inspired fiction. I don't think the book of Mormon and the church can survive the idea of it just being inspired fiction, because if it's if it's fiction and Joseph Smith knew it was fiction, and knew he was creating fiction, then it's the, then it's a fraud, and uh, I, I I just can't get there from here. In order to be able to have faith in Joseph Smith's prophetic mission, I have to have faith that Joseph believed what he was doing, and I have to have faith in the product of what he produced. Yeah, and and I. I hear that, and I and I um, I honor that. That's the place, the ground you're holding. I will simply offer just so the listeners here, uh, I'm actually much more in favor of all. And again, I don't want to go down this road because this would take us completely off track and go two hours some other direction. But I'm completely open to all sacred text being mythological and being fiction and teaching us human values in a way that other documents and stories can't do unless the people reading it place some level of authority in it. And hence most people then take it as literal. Um, but I'm okay with the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita or, or all the sacred text of the world being just that, which is fiction created in the mind or by the writing of another and imposed as something authoritative uh, in order to teach us humans how to get along in large groups and to function uh, in a society. So, But I don't want to go down that track. I just simply want the listeners to hear that there may be ways to make fiction work and to maintain some level of spiritual spirituality connected to those sacred texts rather than throw out the baby with the bathwater and everybody become an atheist. Well, I, um, I, I want to agree with you to, to a certain degree there. I mean, we talked last time about the book of Job 
I, I believe that Job, the book of Job, is largely inspired fiction. It's ancient inspired fiction. I, I am open to the possibility that there was a guy named Job who had a, a rough time. And I think this story was sort of built around him. I, I, I look at a lot of scripture as, as, as a mix of the historical and the figurative in, in ways that the ancients really didn't care about distinguishing. I mean, I believe there was a person named Noah. I believe there was an Adam and an Eve. I believe that a lot of what we know about Adam and Eve and about Noah and about Job and all about all of these people who were real people uh, includes a lot of figurative and mythical and all those kinds of elements that teach truths that are very valuable. Uh, but I, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater with the idea that it's just all, all fiction and these people didn't actually exist. But the Book of Mormon particularly, and I think the Book of Abraham is in this camp as well, uh, they both make claims to antiquity, and the Book of Mormon talks about you know, plates and witnesses to the plates, that, that a, a very real and tangible connection to the ancient world, that uh, if, if that connection does not exist, if, if this really is just fiction, and Joseph Smith is saying, uh, Moroni, I saw an angel named Moroni. Well, no, I really didn't, uh, but I needed to tell that story in order to make the Book of Mormon plausible or whatever else. Then Joseph Smith is lying. And I, I don't think people who look at the Book of Job and say Job is fictional, they, you're, not, you're not saying that anybody's lying to you. I mean, maybe the authors of the book of Job are lying to you, but I don't think that they were even trying to present this as sort of an accurate history. It's a poem. And, you know, so they're, they're, you know, here's a lovely poem. I don't think when you walk into a, a theater and you sit down and watch a musical, that if there isn't a disclaimer at the beginning that says, by the way, none of this stuff actually happened. I don't think that any of these people are lying to you. I, I think everybody understands and knows what it is. So I, I think you have to address each ancient scripture on its own terms. And I think the Book of Mormon and the Book of Abraham and a lot of the things that Joseph Smith revealed uh, have to be considered on different terms than some of these other scriptures that we know are ancient and, and may be ancient fiction, but teach valuable truths and and I and I think that there's value in that, and I and I so I wanted to agree with you on that point. Gotcha, and, and I <clears throat> and I agree with you by the way that whether the Book of Mormon is historical or not, that that issue <clears throat> isn't going to be settled in forty hours of you and me sitting down. But I do agree with you that if if it's not, and if the church were to move in the direction, even if it is. If the church were to move in the direction of uh, making it a figurative text, making it uh, a fictional text uh, that that is simply there to guide us, I agree with you. The church um, would lose people even faster, probably, than what it is right now. Um, on some right, like on some level, Mormonism has painted itself into a corner where our truth claims are founded on what we claim to be historical events and our scriptural text we claim is based on historical events. And if we rip that rug out from under and begin to say like, yeah, 
You know, we claim Peter, James, and John came down. We claim the book of Abraham were actual ancient Nephites and Lamanites. If we back away from the historicity of our truth claims, the, the church becomes something completely different, and that different probably doesn't sustain any kind of dynamic growth throughout the rest of history. Well, I think you've, you've already seen what happens when a church tries to do that. I think you see that in the community of Christ. The community of Christ has, to a large degree, abandoned the Book of Mormon, uh, or at least, you know, they, they certainly don't stand by the Book of Abraham, and they insist the Book of Mormon is kind of, they don't put it on the same footing as the Bible. I don't think they've come out specifically and said it's inspired fiction, but that's essentially the position of the community of Christ. And they're largely indistinguishable from any other kind of Protestant sect. And, you know, good for them. I, 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 have, I have no ill will toward the community of Christ, but I think if the church were to abandon, you know, we've got Moroni on top of all of our temples. And if we were to come back and say, well, there really wasn't a Moroni, and Joseph Smith just made him up, yeah, I think that would pull the rug out. I don't think we could do that and survive as a church. I think we would probably go the way of the community of Christ and become just another generic Protestant sect. And, you know, you, you talk about losing members. The church continues to grow, but at a slower rate than it has in, in a very long time. And churches outside of, of our church are bleeding members left and right. You know, millennials are all becoming nuns, not N-U-Ns, but N-O-N-E-S's, people who don't have any kind of religion. And I, I think, you know, the church... I, I would agree the church has no choice in my mind but to defend the historicity of its truth claims and the historicity of the Book of Mormon, uh, the actuality of, of angels and those kinds of things appearing to Joseph Smith. Uh, to just say all of that was just something Joseph Smith made up, uh, I, I think this church collapses if that's, if that's where we go. And I, and I don't really see any indication. I mean, there are people who talk about the idea that, well, that's where we're going. And I don't see an indication that that's where we're going. But I may be wrong on that. Yeah. And, and, and so, again, I don't want to go off the track. So I, I'll simply put out that doing a podcast, and I'm a nobody, but doing a podcast, you, you end up with people listening and the people who listen have an allegiance to what you say and they have allegiance to your program. And so you have a connection to lots of people. Right. And in that connection, I've had a chance to talk to sources who work inside the church office building, who are in the middle of their own faith transition and see the church in much the same light as I do. And, in, and one of the things that's come back to me and has been verified by more than one source is that there is a plan not, not to, and I don't... Because this is it's more complex than saying like the church is going to go to a non-historical view. That's not the case. You're right when we say it that binary. What the church, I think, is going to do is in the next decade or two, they are going to create a space where those who hold a non-historical view can feel comfortable remaining in the church. Well, um, and I think that's a very different thing. I think thing. it is a very different thing, and but, I think that's a very good thing. I, 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 because I don't I, – well, and this may seem like a huge tangent, but uh, where I have found myself at 
most at odds with the church in my lifetime was in 2015 when the church issued its policy that they wouldn't allow the baptism of the children of gay, uh, married gay parents. Uh, I, I looked at that and said, this is wrong. I, I fundamentally disagree with this. And, you know, we're now four years, three and a half years later, or, well, three years later, I guess. So it was November of 2015. Um, and I still believe it's wrong. I am, I am in, I'm in direct disagreement with my church leaders. And I look at that and, and I, and I started saying that. I wrote that up on my blog and I was astonished at how many people uh, their first reaction was, well, get out, leave. We don't want you here. We want you out of the church. You have a disagreement with the church. You have a problem with the church. Well, then you should be gone and you should go as far away as you possibly can because this church doesn't want you. And I was really shocked and rattled by that because I've, you know, I, I've been a lifelong member of the church. I, I still believe in the church's fundamental truth claims. I still believe in all these things. I've served faithfully in whatever all, whatever boxes you want to check. And, and to, to recognize that there was this huge contingent of the church that was w just waiting to pounce on me the moment I had a disagreement uh, was astonishing to me. So when you tell me that the church is now trying to find ways to accommodate members who, uh, you know, to, to, to carve out a space for people who aren't willing to accept a fullness of the truth claims, who aren't willing to accept a historical Book of Mormon and all of those things, my reaction is hallelujah. Uh, you know, I, I absolutely believe that the church ought to be able to accept anybody that wants to participate with the church on any level and accept them where they are. Uh, I, I think that's extraordinarily important. And so if that's actually happening, and I think that there is evidence that that is happening. I think you see um, you see that in uh, conference talks of Dieter Uchtdorf particularly. Well, well, the temple changes that just happened seem to accommodate women who who feel like this church is too sexist. It's too patriarchal. And, and on some level, they've removed... Essentially, everything in the presentation of the endowment that would that would rub a female the wrong way in terms of uh, sexism or patriarchy. Uh, well, it, and I'll get in trouble if I talk about the temple with any specificity, but uh, I, I I would say I think there's still probably more room for them to do that. Sh yeah. Uh, no, no, I, and I agree with you there too. There are things that are still patri that are still patriarchy present in the temple. Um, I'm specifically talking about the presentation of the down. I don't want to get off track again, right, so we're right. gonna let's do this. So let's. I want to spend a few more minutes in the Book of Abraham, then I want to move on. Okay. Um, you you talked about, and by the way, I just want to say thank you for saying that because the listeners wish on some level that Mormonism could be more vulnerable about its, its mistakes, about why it did things wrong in the past and now it's doing things differently and, and to stop presenting it like, look, God wanted it this way in 1850 and every time we make a change, it's, it's because God wanted it that way then and he wants it this way now. 
When in reality, if we're just if we're just honest, some of those, at least some of those, are just we got it wrong. Um, and I and I think I, I, as the I church, I could not agree with you more. Thank you, and, and I sense that in what you're saying. That's why I'm saying this because I think the listener will be appreciative of another voice further on the inside than I am saying like, look, let's just be more vulnerable. Let's be more authentic about how messy this is. And let's allow people to feel like they have access to the full story so that they can, and if they leave, they leave, but at least let's not let them feel deceived. Let's, let's prevent that in its entirety Um, as much as possible. And again, sometimes people feel deceived when they're really not. And I grant that. But I think on some level, people feel deceived and some of that is real uh, because the church doesn't want to talk about its messiness. And we talked about that in episode one. So again, listeners can go back and listen to that. In in the book of Abraham, your, I, w- I want to make two more notes and we'll move on. Um, a- again, I'm with you that a catalyst theory kind of kind of rounds off the sharp edges of the book of Abraham. But again, I, I want to say one more time, there's this caveat that if we do that, we have to at least acknowledge, and it seems like you did, that Abraham himself says, look, we're working with this text. And so, yes, maybe there's a repurposing. Maybe, but, but a repurposing is one of those ideas like you can't prove it false, but you also can't prove it true. It's, it's one of those that's an argument from silence again. It, it's throwing out an idea that there really is no serious evidence for, but on the other hand, you also can't prove it false. So it just kind of hangs out there as like, yeah, maybe, maybe it's that. Um, I wanna, so I want to say that, and I want to say that Abraham, again, 1, 12 through 14 on some level, it feels and looks and seems the most rational and seems the most rational by far that Abraham himself is pointing us to the papyri. And and so we have to kind of deal with that. Any answer has to, if it's a reasonable answer, and again, it, again, it's always possible that an irrational answer is the solution. <laughs> but the moment, But the moment we start going to the less than most rational, in other words, Jim, in our normal lives, we, all, we always go with what we in our brains decide is the most rational answer um, until new evidence comes in and points us to something that's more rational. Otherwise, if we're honest with ourselves, if we do anything less than that, we are being irrational. Now, that doesn't mean, so if I say, for instance, I believe in a flat earth, right. you and I both know it's irrational. Now, I might believe it because I see some evidence. So it, it, to me, is the most rational answer. But soon as new evidence comes in that says, like, that's not true, I either have to choose to change my, my conclusion or I become, in my own head, irrational. Um, and I'm already irrational to everybody else who understands the complexity or the data or the evidence of any certain uh, topic that we're talking about. I'm only saying that because once we decide that the most rational way to see this is that Abraham himself in 1, 12 through 14 is pointing us to the papyri that Joseph has, then whatever conclusion we make in order for it to be the most rational conclusion has to deal directly that Joseph is working with 
and thinks he's translating the very papyri, which you've admitted, but it feels sometimes like you're saying, look, I, I think he thinks he's working with it. Yes, I think Abraham's pointing us to that papyri. And then you come back and you're like, yeah, but there's also this catalyst theory and maybe this is happening. And I get we make room for all the irrational answers that are not impossible, but highly, highly unlikely. But we also have to we we have to also deal with the issue collectively. Like once we paint ourselves into a corner saying this is the most reasonable way to see that, our conclusion has to deal with that. Otherwise, our conclusion becomes unreasonable. Uh, well, I, I, it made me laugh in the last in our last conversation when you when you you said okay, if our first conversation was a tie, our second conversation, I won it and and you lost. And, uh, and so I'm probably going to say things now that'll that'll give you a victory in in, in conversation number three. Uh, if if because I think if you take the Book of Abraham and you take and you take it as an isolated case, right, all by itself, all by itself. If there is no Book of Mormon, if Joseph Smith hasn't founded the church, and if there aren't all these other things that have happened. Joseph Smith arrives on the scene, and we know nothing else about him, and all he has is this papyri, and he shows up and says, I'm going to translate it into the book of Abraham, and these are the writings of Abraham. And I look at it, and completely divorced from any of that, uh, I think that the explanation that you are offering is the only reasonable and rational explanation for how the book of Abraham would be produced. I don't think there's any question that that's the case. So why on earth would anybody else come up with any other explanation? And it's because you can't divorce the book of Abraham from the rest of what Joseph Smith has done. And the rest of, you can't divorce it from the book of Mormon. You can't divorce it from all of this kind of stuff. And so in that context, uh, you look at it and go, well, I know all of this other stuff. And how do I reconcile the book of Abraham with all of that other stuff? And so that leads you to considering things that you wouldn't consider about the book of Abraham in isolation. And, and when we talk about a catalyst theory, I, 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 uh, I, what I'm trying to say here is I don't necessarily think that Joseph uh, Joseph wasn't looking at the plates when he was translating the Book of Mormon. I don't know that Joseph was looking at any papyri when he was translating the Book of Abraham. And what may very well have happened is, okay, I've, I've got this papyri, and I'm going to look in my seer stone. Here's what the papyri says. Now let's go back and match up what I found with the papyri. And I think that's where you start getting all of this kind of stuff. Uh, where it's except that Abraham himself tells us that he his writings are are the papyri. Well, he tells us it's at the beginning of his record. Right. It starts with the it starts with the facsimile, and then it's the and then it's the hieroglyphics that follow. Right. Well, if he's saying, but but if the idea is that Abraham's record, what I'm saying is that Abraham's record is not on the papyri. And it could very well be that, okay, this facsimile is at the beginning of whatever Abraham's record was. And now what we have is that facsimile with right next to the Book of Breathings. I mean, and this gets back to Kerry Molstein talking about, and, and he's right, that very on the images were not necessarily next to texts. 
And so Joseph Smith could have made the assumption that, oh, well, very clearly that this text must be there because it's at the beginning of the record. But the record Abraham's talking about is a record that we don't necessarily have in that papyri. Right. And then all I would add is that, yes, that's, that's in the realm of possibilities, but you're, you're asking for coincidences and allowances that while one is free to go that direction, it's less than well, the most rational, and by far less than the most rational well, the way idea to see the that a human being is receiving uh, inspiration from God that gives him is already in the it, realm it, of it, irrationality. Well, it's, it's it's so far uh, less rational in terms of a clearly scientific way to do it that 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 then just starting to strain it it feels like straining it once you allow for that that you're already saying essentially that i am going with an explanation that is not the clear-eyed scientific explanation for the book of abraham you know right, so, right. so so no, so the, trying to nail down okay well this specific text references this specific place and being in a specific thing it's like you've already swallowed the camel uh, don't, so this just strikes. What's, what's a few more slices well, of an elephant? No, right? it's a few more gnats. That's, <laughs> okay. that's, that's the savior's explanation. You strain at gnats and you swallow camels. Uh, a, a clearly scientific explanation for Smith's ministry is, re- requires a certain degree. I don't like the word irrational because I don't think it's irrational. I, I, and by that, what I mean is when – so if we're presented yeah. data, there's a way in which our right. brains say like this is the most reasonable way to see that. And I'm simply saying any time we go with an answer that is less than the most reasonable way in our inside our brains, we, we are choosing for whatever reasons well, – and we have valid reasons for why we do it – that we're choosing to be less than well, most rational, which is I, irrational. I look at – so, so I keep coming back to the Book of Mormon rather than the Book of Abraham, because that's where I essentially make that leap. What my father could- right. That's your motive. That's your reason for choosing to not go with the most rational answer on the Book of Abraham. Yes. Right. Total- and I grant that. Um, I wanted to make one more point, which is you mentioned these these things of antiquity in the Book of Abraham, and I'm and I I'm not a scholar enough to get into the specifics. I only want to make a reference so the listener can then go do their own research. Um, In the Book of Abraham essay on LDS.org, the very last footnote, I think it's footnote number 46, um, one of the things that I've become aware of by talking to Brian uh, Haglid, by listening to him and Robin Scott Jensen, is that it becomes clear that chapter one of Abraham and a chunk of chapter two are translated in the 1830s in Kirtland. And then the rest of the Book of Abraham is translated in the 1840s in Nauvoo. And this is important for this reason. Uh, In chapter 1 and 2, you don't have, at least in the early part of 2, which was in Kirtland translated, you don't have those nods to antiquity. They show up in the later parts that are... Um, translated in Nauvoo in the 1840s. This is important because uh, the church acknowledges in footnote number 46 
that Joseph Smith had access to the books of Josephus, uh, the book of Jasher, uh, and he also was at that point diving deep into uh, Hebrew. And so in that process of being aware of those books, and the church says we don't know if he utilized those books, but we admit he had access to them. It says all this in the footnote? It does. Footnote number 46. In fact, I'll read it here to, uh, to you and to, to the listener. And, and I'm not going to read the entire footnote. You're welcome to do it. But the very last section says, Some of these extra-biblical elements were available to Joseph Smith through the books of Jasher and Josephus. Joseph Smith was aware of these books, but it is unknown whether he utilized them. So I would simply say that, and, and they're saying some of the ancient elements, I think there's a big debate there on what they mean by some, because some seems to infer less than half. Um, but I would argue, and, and again, in my conversations and listening to the scholars, my understanding is that a far majority of the ancient parallels uh, are, are in things Joseph would have clearly had access to, including the book of Josephus and the book of Jasher. And so I simply want the listener to know it's not, a, it's not an automatic granting that the book of Abraham has ancient concepts that Joseph had no business getting right, but that on some level there is a lot of room for Joseph to have had very much access uh, to the parallels that are found in the book of Abraham that we propose to be ancient, but which are also in his milieu. Is that fair enough? Well, it's interesting because I, I've just pulled up the Brian Haglid Facebook statement that you read to me at the, at the end of our last conversation. Yes. And he says in here, um, I, I now reject a missing Abraham manuscript. I agree that two of the Abraham manuscripts were simultaneously dictated. Which to me would suggest he's saying that the book of Abraham was simultaneously dictated, that it wasn't that it wasn't written in the eighteen thirties and then in the eighteen forties. Am am I getting that wrong? Yeah, what he's pointing at is that we have two copies of uh the manuscript of the book of Abraham and that there is debate uh, among whether one was done first and then one was done much later. And Brian's simply saying that the evidence has pointed him, as he's worked on the Joseph Smith papers, to recognizing that both these manuscripts were dictated at the same time. It's a completely different uh, thing going on. So you're on. talking about the dictation of the manuscript, not necessarily the production of the manuscript. Right, and I, and I think... Yeah, and I think the reason, if we go back to the Book of Mormon, there was such heartache over having a original manuscript and then doing the printer's manuscript and the risk of losing it, and then the 116 pages before that, that when they got to the Book of Abraham, they immediately decided, let's make two copies to begin with of the translation. It, it doesn't have anything to do with... Um, what you're interpreting it as. And, and again, I'll, I'll, I'll message Brian today just to have him clarify what he means by that. And we can discuss his answer uh, in our, in part four at the beginning before we do other things. But from my understanding of having talked to him and listened to this is that when Joseph begins the book of Abraham translation, he is at all times making two copies as he goes along in the dictation so that there's so that immediately there's not the risk of losing 
piece of it and it being gone and having to start over. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Fair enough. So again, I'm just, I'm just wanting you to grant again on footnote 46 that at least some, whatever some means, and, and I, I would want the listener to go do the research, but at least some of the ancient parallels, um, Joseph would have actually had access to. Uh, that's fine. Okay. Good. Cool. Um, let's take some time now and jump into, I guess, polygamy. Um, I, I think this is another, again, we're hitting these high yeah, issues. And, good stuff. Uh, you, when this is all done, you and I are going to be exhausted. <laughs> uh, and, we may, and hopefully we're still friends. And hopefully maybe sometime I get to meet you in person and I can buy you dinner. Um, I, I don't ever want to make an enemy. I, just, I, I think these issues, let, let me put it this way. I think the average member is so naive to these and and for various reasons. And some of those are their own choosing not to want to read and not to want to study. And and again, those all have reasons too. Um, But that for the person who dives into Mormonism's history, they are quickly going to find out that the Sunday school version of the church they grew up with doesn't match the story that's actually in the historical record and that causes fairly, I argue, fairly, for people to feel betrayed or deceived on at least some level. And again, some of that we can maybe explain away and excuse. But on some level, feel betrayal. And on some level, to begin deconstructing their faith and putting something else in its place. And for some, they, they rebuild a new Mormonism and they maintain faith in the church. And for others, they they build something that's outside of Mormonism and they step away. And and I think these conversations at least validate to the person who's done the reading that that knowing this stuff does cause some, some indigestion. It does cause some heartache. Agreed? Oh, no question. Uh, it, uh, and gotcha. again, it caused heartache for me. I went through this experience, uh, and, and I think I had the benefit of a father and a family that was willing to address these things head on and do so with respect and kindness. Because uh, I think I think what exacerbates the problem is that people bump into historical things that they weren't prepared for. They bring up the questions, and all that does is bring down condemnation from people. Pray harder. You, you're, you're not righteous enough. And that that's absolutely the wrong the wrong answer. When, when Robin Jensen said that in his Book of Abraham presentation, I, I want to get up and cheer when he said, you can't just look at these problems with the Book of Abraham and say, well, you're not praying hard enough. Yeah, those those folks often have have maybe even read too much or prayed too much or... Right. It, it, in other words, it's not until they finally throw in the towel that they step away from their Mormon practice. Um, Again, my experience, and I'm not saying everybody, my experience far and wide has generally been that when people encounter the messiness of Mormonism, the the first thing they try to do is to double down and to do those things with even more fervor than they ever did. Um, And and that doesn't seem on on its surface to be the solution to the problem which I think is what you're saying as well, that that just telling someone to read more scripture and to pray more to Heavenly Father isn't going to, on its own, solve the problem if this person has deep questions and things aren't adding right. up. 
Okay, cool. And I think people will appreciate you saying that as well. All right, let me let me try without going too long to talk about on a surface level polygamy. Um, I think most members of the church are raised with a Sunday school version of Mormonism, and in that version, they they don't really have access to conversations about Joseph Smith as a polygamist. Um, even the conversation about polygamy generally in Mormonism was uh, encouraged to not be discussed in our Sunday schools. I think there's even a comment in the Sunday school manual to not get into the uh, history or the specifics of polygamy. Um, the manuals that we use intentionally pick out pieces and parts of section 132, intentionally avoiding other sections of 132 that would lead us into those conversations. Um, I think most Mormons, I hope most Mormons were at least aware that Brigham Young was a polygamist and that polygamy was in the church. Although I think most Mormons grew up with very simplified answers of those were the widows who lost their husbands on the trail. Right. God did it for a very short time. It was a very few select members who practiced polygamy. Um, they have very ignorant, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I don't, I'm not trying to mock anybody, but very ignorant, naive understandings of what polygamy was. Once, once the person who dives into the messiness of Mormonism, what they discover is that Joseph Smith was a polygamist with 30 to 40 wives, and I think most scholars say 33, 34, um, that Joseph married young girls, some as young as 14, at least two of them were at the age of 14. There are 15-year-olds, there are 16-year-olds, um, and, and, those, and those relationships have complexities to them. Uh, he married or was sealed to women who were already married to other men, which is called polyandry. So if someone's heard that word and uh, that Joseph at times withheld an awareness of polygamy, not only from the public, but also from his wife. Uh, and sometimes he would even enter relationships with say a pair of sisters, the Partridge sisters, for instance, where the two of them didn't know about each other. And then, uh, Emma finally gives permission for him to practice it. She chooses the Partridge sisters who he's already sealed to. And he has a mock marriage for her to view it as the first marriage when in reality it's the second. So there's a deception going on there. Right. Um, there is this idea that can be debated about Joseph uh, having sent men, namely Orson Pratt, on a mission in order to approach his wife. That's debatable, but there's a similar circumstance with Lucy Walker, where Joseph does send the dad on a mission, promises to take care of Lucy Walker as his own child, refers to Lucy uh, as one of his children, and then in and then behind the scenes is approaching her for plural marriage, and like with others, gives Lucy a small time frame to make a decision, and seems to suggest some sort of spiritual threat if she doesn't agree to, to enter polygamy. And again, I know some of this is debatable, and so we may have responses to yeah, these. Yeah, I mean, there are several of these. Uh, I, I, I'm letting you speak, but there are, there, are, there are many of these places where I want to push back. Yeah, and so so I'll, I'll finish up here, and I'll give you time to respond, and we can dive into some of these. I expect us probably 
to still be on polygamy in the next episode. Sure. Um, uh, There's a lot here. Yeah. And so I, I, I want to honor, I want to validate like lying is not always wrong. Um, if I'm somebody in Nazi Germany, who's hiding a Jew in my attic and the Nazis knock on my door and say, are there any Jews here? And I say, no, I've lied. But I've also, I think, done a lie that actually has more integrity than telling the truth, which I think is something you were kind of pointing to earlier. So I want to acknowledge on the surface, like there are some people who are so binary, the moment they hear Joseph Smith lied, they throw in the towel and they say, I can't believe in a prophet who lies. The reality is we lie for various reasons. And I think when we lie to cover our own rear end, that becomes a, a, a negative and immoral decision. When we lie to truly protect out of our care and concern for others um, and, to, and to protect others from harm, whatever kind of harm that is, uh, I think then it becomes in the realm of debatable and in many cases is justifiable and actually the, the higher morality. Um, so I want to grant that. So knowing all these complexities of polygamy that members don't grow up with, and then the member dives into it and they're learning all these things and they're having to wrestle with whether Joseph had integrity um, and also fidelity as he practiced it. Uh, and then, and then again, we get all of these kind of side issues that happen within polygamy. And I know that's a ton. So feel free to dissect them one by one, throw out a bunch of generalities or pick one and we'll just go into it for a little while but I wanted to give you time to let me know how you'd like to go about responding to that. Well, um, maybe it might be best if I sort of begin with, with a, my own personal background. I'm not a polygamist, but uh, uh, polygamy in my family and how that sort of colored my perception of polygamy historically. Um, I, I think I mentioned in a previous conversation, you know, my grandmother on my father's side, Francis Mary Grant Bennett, uh, was the last surviving daughter of Heber J. Grant and the daughter of his third wife. Uh, she, by the time Heber J. Grant was president of the church, two of his wives had died. And, uh, so the church essentially was trying to pretend that he was a monogamist. It was, he didn't become president of the church until well after the manifesto and well after what people now call the second manifesto. I mean, polygamy was still happening after 1890 and it wasn't until I think 1910 that it became grounds for excommunication from the church that the church finally said, no, really, we're going to stop it. We're not just going to say we're stopping it. We're actually stopping it. Right. Third times. And then we're serious this time. And we're serious this time. Um, so for the first 12 years of her life, my grandmother uh, went to school under a different name and was raised by her sister. And uh, it wasn't until she was 12 years old that they register as, as Francis Grant, knowing that that would expose her to, uh, to law enforcement to say, oh, this means that Heber J. Grant is a polygamist. But by that point, nobody really cared anymore, and so it just kind of vanished. But even later on, after she got married, my, my, my grandfather wrote a letter to, I'm not sure what the periodical was, the church periodical at the time, I don't know, the Improvement Era or what it was, but they ran an article that talked about Heber J. Grant and his wife and his children, wife singular. And 
the children were the children of that wife, and it didn't include my grandmother. And my grandfather wrote this sort of fiery letter that said, "Are you you to the church saying you are you are disavowing the existence of my wife? I'm not okay with that. You need to acknowledge that Heber J. Grant was a polygamist and had three wives, and I'm married to one of his daughters." And that didn't necessarily that didn't go anywhere, as far as I know. But it was always interesting to me to to talk to my grandfather about that. He was really quite upset about that. And, and he was quite upset that the church wasn't willing to frankly acknowledge its own history. Um, there are a number of letters that Heber J. Grant wrote to all of his wives that are really quite lovely. And if anybody made, Heber, it made polygamy work, it was Heber J. Grant. And at one point... Uh, President Kimball was president of the church, and Truman Madsen, who is also a descendant of Heber J. Grant, he's my father's first cousin, he went to my grandmother and said, you have a duty to publish these letters that Heber J. Grant wrote, because this would give everybody a greater understanding of polygamy and put it in a much nicer context, and and you have a duty and a responsibility to get that story out there. And my grandmother was really kind of concerned, and she called Spencer Kimball, who was president of the church at the time, and Spencer Kimball showed up at her house to talk about this. And she said, do I have a duty to publish this? And Spencer Kimball says, you, you are welcome to publish it, but you don't have a duty to publish it if you don't want to. And he, and he said, and we have polygamy in my family, and it isn't nearly as pretty as the polygamy in your family. And I don't want to publish any of that. So, you know, so I look at that. I don't think there is any question that the church has tried very hard to sort of downplay the uglier elements of polygamy, not just with Joseph Smith, but throughout history. I, another personal story. I, I, I'm giving personal stories before I want to dive into any kind of direct uh, response to all of the things that you'd listed, because I, I, I want to give my personal context. Uh, I was the uh, artistic director down at the Tuacon Center for the Arts for about five years. Well, I was actually the artistic director for three years, and well, never mind. You, nobody cares. Uh, I, I, you live in Southern Utah. Have you? Have, did you ever? Except you, you didn't move there until what? Until 2010, 20. Yeah, we yeah we talked about this a little bit in episode one. Uh, I moved there in 2015. Oh, early 2015. In the year. Okay, so so when when Tuacon was founded, uh, their show was uh, a, an original musical called Utah exclamation point, and it was the story of Jacob Hamblin, and it uh, it bombed at the box office. Nobody wanted to come see it. And it included Jacob Hamlin's polygamy and included all kinds of, it included the Mountain Meadows Massacre. It included all kinds of things that uh, nobody wanted to talk about. And when I was hired at Tuacon, I was hired right after they had abandoned Utah as their signature show. And after a couple of years, they came back and they said, well, we own all this music and we own this show we don't have to pay royalty for it, and we want to do it again, only this time we don't want to have the Mountain Meadows Massacre in it. We don't want to have any polygamy in it. 
We don't want to have any of this stuff in it. And Jim, you have to write it. <laughs> went, okay, well, what am I going to say? Does Jacob Hamlin go to the North Pole and meet Santa Claus? What, what, what happens? And I ended up writing it sort of a very, very small sliver of time before Jacob Hamlin became a polygamist, and we just never mentioned any of it. But I just went, you know, the, the church, this is never, this is not healthy. It is not healthy to try to pretend that history didn't happen. And, and you know, I had never really been confronted with polygamy personally until I moved to southern Utah and saw all of these FLDS people at Walmart in their long dresses and their uncut hair that's braided in the back. And I, you know, I, and I had all of the same kind of prejudices, I think that anybody does. And that you look at that and go, boy, that's weird. And that's strange. And, and I remember talking to my father and saying, where does all that come from? Because, uh, your mother, who was the daughter of polygamy, didn't have any of that. And he said, no, no, that I mean, you know, so, so th there's a lot we just don't, we just, we've just ignored We've just tried to sweep all of polygamy under the rug. And I am grateful that we're not trying to do that anymore. Uh, or at least we've, we're not trying to do it as hard. <laughs> or, or we, at least we recognize we can't do that anymore. I think there are a lot of people who would like. Right. The, the internet, yeah, the internet and the information age has imposed on us that we're only going to look really bad and, and much worse than we did if, if we, we continue, continue to avoid it. it. So. So I think we need to confront it all head on and we need to address what it is. And that said, it's important when we confront it, we have to confront it uh, without a presentist mindset. You know, one of the biggest problems with, with historians is this idea of presentism, that you, that you start judging people by the mores and the contexts of the present rather than of the past. The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Right. I've heard that a few times. I've heard that from Stephen Harper and from Matthew right. Groh from the well, Church good. History Department. Uh, well, but that's, I mean, that's one of the biggest problems with the CES letter is the CES letter is 100% presentist. Everything is, well, this isn't the way I do it now. Today, me, Jeremy Runnels, so it's weird and strange and wrong. And the way plural marriage was practiced is really requires a deliberate attempt to avoid presentism Be, and even presentism in the church, because our understanding of what marriage is and what sealing is, I think in the church in the 21st century is very different from what Joseph Smith thought it was because it, if polygamy is what most of its critics seem to argue it is, which was just an excuse for Joseph Smith's sexual adventurism, uh, it was a really awkward and inefficient vehicle for doing that. Joseph Smith really created a really lousy system if all he wanted to do was bet as many women as he possibly could. And, you know, going back to L. Ron Hubbard, who wrote to himself, all men are your slaves, all Joseph Smith, if, if, if really all he wanted to do was what John C. Bennett was doing, and incidentally I'm not related to John C. Bennett, I have to make that point to lots of people, um, but, uh, John C. Bennett was going to women and saying, we are now spiritually married so we can have sex. Don't tell your husband you're my spiritual wife. 
And, and that was very clearly a pretext for John C. Bennett to bet as many women as he possibly could. And Joseph Smith uh, wasn't doing that. That's not what was happening. And in fact, I think one of the reasons why we look back at some of these things where we say, oh, Joseph was lying. Look at Joseph lying at everybody that he's not practicing polygamy. And how dare he, in the CES letter, Jeremy Runnels says, he had, he had his plural wives standing with him as he stood and read an affidavit saying, uh, we reject polygamy. And isn't that dishonest? And isn't that terrible? And I say, okay, look at, look at what was happening. Look at what it, what it was that he's actually saying and what he's actually doing. Because in Joseph's mind, I am convinced, what he was doing, plural marriage, was very different from what John C. Bennett was doing. And the affidavit that Jeremy Runnels is pointing to is an affidavit where Joseph Smith stands up and says, I condemn John C. Bennett's spiritual wifeism. I am not practicing John C. Bennett's spiritual wifeism. And in his mind, and I think in practice, what he was doing was, in fact, very different from John C. Bennett's spiritual wifeism. But as you get 150, 200 years away from what was happening, all of that stuff sort of blends together in a really awful mess. And so John C. Bennett's predatory behavior gets mixed with what it was Joseph Smith was doing, and it all becomes sort of the same thing, and it becomes very difficult to separate the two. And Joseph Smith, I think, gets a bad rap, for engaging in a practice that, to a very large degree, was not a sexual practice. The vast majority of these marriages did not involve sexual relationships, particularly with the young girls. I mean, Helen Mark Kimball is really the only 14-year-old that we know absolutely that he was sealed to. And we also know, if not absolutely, we have very strong evidence that there was no sexual component to that relationship, that this was essentially a dynastic sealing that was proposed by Helen Mark Kimball's parents in order to link the family of the prophet to the family of the Kimballs. And she writes this very heartbreaking poem where she said, I thought this was going to be just for eternity only, but this is messing up my life now because I can't go and I can't date other boys. I can't have the same kind of relationship that other 14-year-olds get to have. And so I'm really miserable. And it makes you think, yeah, that's very sad. And at the same time, it's very clear she's not having sex with Joseph Smith. So the, 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 the thing that has happened as a result of ignoring polygamy for so long is that the church has allowed the, the most salacious and the most destructive interpretation of polygamy to become the only one that has been talked about. The church has not offered any attempt until really relatively recently, until we started seeing these essays, you know, it, it was amazing to me that the New York Times felt it newsworthy to say the church finally admits Joseph Smith was a polygamist, front page news. And my reaction to that was, well, no, Doctrine and Covenants section 132 has been continually in print for over 150 years. But what the church has finally done is has they're not trying to sweep it under the rug anymore. They're not trying to avoid talking about it as much as they were. Uh, but by avoiding talking about it, you allow the worst possible interpretations of what Joseph Smith did and the worst possible uh, descriptions of his motives to become the dominant narrative. 
And I don't think that's an accurate narrative. I don't think, I mean, you, when you go back to the book of Abraham and you say, you know, this is the most rational explanation for what happened with the book of Abraham. I think the most rational explanation for what happened in the early days of polygamy is much, uh, put, paints Joseph Smith in a, in a much better light than how he is painted by his critics of polygamy today. Um, so what I think would be helpful here, cause I, I think to get into the general ideas of, for instance, integrity and fidelity, um, I think we have to jump into a couple of these specifics. And so I'm hoping maybe we can get through one or two of these today and then address other ones in the future. Sure. And I, and I, I'm expecting that on some level you're going to grant that Joseph made some serious mistakes as he implemented this principle. You know, I, I really, and I think I said this before, but I really think if you can accept a church that is led by imperfect people who make mistakes and acknowledge that, uh, I think so many of the, the feelings of betrayal or the feelings of, of panic that the church, oh, the, the, of the rug being pulled out from under you, I think a lot of that goes away. I, I am fully of the opinion that Joseph Smith was capable of and indeed made many, many mistakes, and many of them very serious mistakes. I, 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 think, I think Joseph Smith would have lived to a ripe old age if he hadn't made the massive mistake of destroying the Nauvoo Expositor. That was a huge mistake. And, and, and anybody who says otherwise, there's, 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 it, it, it just doesn't make any sense. I don't, I, the, the idea of infallibility does not sit well with me on any level. So, so there, is, there is never an option in any of these where it's, well, Joseph wasn't capable of making a mistake. That's, that's never an option for an explanation for me. Perfect. And, and I, the, the reason I hesitate here is because this kind of a conversation you and I are having, and we just did it over the book of Abraham, and we did it in the episode one and two, although I think with more gentleness... Um, the, the trouble is it feels like I'm playing a game of gotcha. Like, let me tell you a story and then you admit he screwed up and let's just do that a hundred times until people are overwhelmed by how much Joseph screwed up and the church screwed up that they throw in the towel. I don't, I, that's not really my intention, but that's going to be on some level a natural, it's, it's the reason the church avoided these conversations is because on some level it forces them to acknowledge there's been some mess ups. And then the number of mess-ups sometimes become overwhelming and people leave. But I think on some level, people need validation from the inside of the church. And I'm putting you on that inside. They need validation that, yeah, that's that's the data. They're, the interpretation, we may disagree a little bit, but that's the data. And on some level, yeah, something's not quite right here. And, and I think people need to hear that. So I, I say all that so that the listener knows, like, look, let's not play a game of gotcha but we're still going, it's going to still look like it well, um, I, I as we go into some of these issues. I don't want to make it look like gotcha either because I want to concede at the outset that polygamy is extraordinarily messy. And Joseph's practice of polygamy is extraordinarily messy. Uh, I want to concede that at the outset. What we're going to push back is in the idea that that's all it was. That polygamy was nothing but messy. That polygamy was only an excuse for Joseph Smith to have sex with women he wasn't married to, and because that, that I think has become the narrative. And when I look at polygamy and I look at Joseph's practice of polygamy, 
my reaction is I see somebody who is trying desperately to do something that he thinks is essential to the restoration of the gospel and it, at times failing miserably at it and making huge mistakes at doing it because he's trying to navigate an area that is just extraordinarily fraught all the way around. And I also look at polygamy. I remember having a conversation with my father about polygamy and, and, and he said, the thing, one of the things that people don't need to under, people need to understand about polygamy is that it was the doctrine of the church that held the church together for a very, very long time. The church was under fire all over the place. And when you joined the church, and if you actually entered into a plural marriage, you had to step out of the world in a way that bound you to the church very tightly. So that as the church is being driven out of their homes and being driven across the plains, uh, you stick to the church in a way that you wouldn't necessarily do if you weren't bound as tightly. That polygamy bound the church together in the early years when it was very vulnerable and needed to be able to survive a great deal of persecution. And and so and so when I looked at it, I thought, okay, I I can see a divine hand in polygamy if that's one of the reasons for it. But I, I but I don't think it helps anybody to shy away from the messiness. So, so when, when you start pointing out things that are messy about polygamy, uh, uh, I don't want you to feel like you're putting me on the spot. I, I, I mean, I don't know that I know any more about this than anybody else, but, but uh, I recognize that polygamy is exceptionally messy and that, uh, and, and there's no way to begin to clean up any of it unless you look at the mess first. There's no way to air out the closet unless you open the door. Right. And and at, on some level, I agree with you, the church is more now than ever opening up, maybe, maybe cracking the window open a bit, maybe opening the door a little to this conversation taking place inside the church. In other words, in the three-hour block or in our conversations with other members of the church, I think you, I'm assuming you would also agree that on some level, the conversation we're about to have is still not a conversation the church is comfortable enough with yet to make space for. Uh, I think I agree with that. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, I, I don't think for instance, I'm going to get in trouble for having this conversation. no, no. But I don't think this is something that you're going to hear in conference. Yeah, they they would prefer this conversation stay out of correlated Mormonism. Uh, more or less, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, all right, let's start. Uh, and I want to share some of the personal stories. I think I'll try to save those for the next episode. But let's start off with section 132. Heavenly Father talks to Joseph, and Heavenly Father does in at least in my mind and in a lot of members' minds, Heavenly Father does lay out some guidelines. He lays out some rules. He lays out some ways in which if we're going to practice this, and I'm commanding you to practice it, it should be practiced this way. So one of the arguments from apologists is that Joseph's given this principle to practice and he's given no framework to practice it, so we should expect him to make mistakes. I don't think that's fair. 
because I think Section 132 lays out specific rules. And those rules tend to be that any of the plural wives should have, that before that marriage takes place, you should have the permission of the first wife. Right. That the the additional wives should be virgins. And if they're virgins, um, that also indicates that they should not be married, right? Like, like if you're married, you almost likely are not a virgin. Okay. I want to push back a little bit of that because I, I, I know Jeremy leans very heavily on that, on the word virgin. None of these women were virgins, or if they were married, they weren't virgins and all of this kind of thing. Uh, I think that's a presentist understanding of what, what virgin means in this context. Uh, for instance, uh, I think when the Lord talks about virgins, he's much more interested in sexual purity or virtue uh, than he is in the kind of, you know, physical exam that Princess Diana had to take before she married Prince Charles to make sure that they'd have no sexual contact. My understanding of how the Lord views sexual virtue is that when we repent of our sins, he remembers them no more. So I think when he's talking about a virgin, he's not necessarily talking about a physical virgin so much as somebody who is spiritually virtuous who is not sexually impure or improper. And so I don't think that somebody who has repented of sexual sin or somebody who has been, who is, is divorced or is, you know, and, and is right with the Lord in terms of the Lord's um, demands of sexual purity. I don't think that they are disqualified by that language. That may be a private interpretation. They, that may not be fair, but, uh, the way polygamy was practiced uh, suggests that everybody else in the 19th century who was practicing polygamy had some kind of different perception of that as well, because it never came up. It never came up. Well, you can't marry her because she's not a virgin. And so clearly they interpreted the revelation in a way that I think is probably more consistent with how I'm interpreting it than how anyone who would be heavily leaning on a scientific definition of virginity would interpret that. Okay. So, and, and I grant that uh, watching polygamy unfold in the church, that you uh, would sense that, that, again, like you pointed out, they're not raising the concern. Nobody, there's no documentation of people... Um, raising their hand and objecting because someone's not a virgin. But again, on some level, this practice was very uh, withhold, withheld kind of from public conversation. So my follow-up question... Initially, yes. I mean, after Brigham Young announced polygamy in 18... Is it 1850... 1852, I think. It's 1852. Um, lot, lot, a lot of things happened in 1852. Because I think yeah. that's the same year he announced Grayson. the Princess Band. Yeah, yeah, 1852, 1854, somewhere in there. Yeah, you're right. That's a right. That's a one year or two year, three year period where some serious stuff is uh, is getting unfolded to the church publicly. Right, uh, but uh, after that, uh, polygamy was practiced openly. So and it was practiced openly for another forty years, and we had the manifesto and everything that went along with that, which is all messy. Right. Um, do you so you you acknowledge that that might be a private interpretation by you? And I'm granting that I can't prove that not true. 
Um, but do you have, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm literally curious, I'm not trying to trap you. Is there, is there any other evidence from the culture uh, in America at large or anything specifically in the church where we can point to and say like, nope, virgin doesn't mean the way we in 2019 take it? Or are you saying like, look, it's the only way I can make sense of it, but no, there's not any evidence that I could use to support it. No, the evidence is how it was practiced. I, I mean, this may seem like a tangent, but Adam... No, no, and I agree with... I understand what you're saying, and I agree no, with that. Adam God, for instance. Adam God, the, the doctrine of Adam God that's brought up all over the place. Uh, the evidence that it wasn't that big deal is that there is no, there is no ripple in the practice of Mormonism that would accommodate Adam God the way we 21st century would interpret it, which leads me to believe, okay, how they heard what Brigham Young was saying about Adam God uh, corresponded with their understanding of doctrine and scripture in a way that didn't upset their practice of their religion. And so I look at this and say the, the, the fact that the, the word virgin appears repeatedly in section 132 and yet, throughout the 40 years that polygamy was, public, was practiced publicly, as well as in all the time when it was not practiced publicly, that never, ever comes up, as far as I know. And I haven't reviewed all of the documentation. I don't, I, you know, so somebody may, no, no, it did come up here. I, if, if that's the case, then I'd be happy to look at that. But my understanding is that that was never an issue. It never came up. And if that's the case, then I think that that's very strong, compelling evidence the, that that section, those words were interpreted in a way differently from the way that we would look at that and say, well, if they've had sex, then they're disqualified from being polygamists. Okay. So accepting that as evidence, and again, we would disagree maybe on the strength of it, but accepting that as evidence, is there any other evidence of virgins not meaning someone who has not intentionally had sex with somebody else? No. Okay, good. Um, Not that I know of. Right. And and I know this is also complicated, but I want to go back to it for a moment, which is the the principle that you needed to have the permission of the first wife. The law of Sarah. Right. And I, I assume you would argue, and, and again, you can correct me, I, I, Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris, who are two brilliant minds, Jordan Peterson... Uh, his his comment is, I act as if there is a God, and Sam Harris acknowledges, like, while I value spirituality, I'm an atheist. And these two get into debates, and one of the things they get into uh, in conversation is saying, like, let me state to the other person what I think their belief is, and let's talk about it until I represent their belief in a way that they accept that that's what they believe. And that's a really good way to get at the heart of what these points are and where our conclusions are. So with that said, um, I assume that you would argue that you would agree that Joseph didn't have Emma's permission consistently throughout all of this practice. Correct. I, I'm assuming you would make the argument that Joseph's responsibility is to ask permission. And then once Emma says no, and, and he's being pressured by Heavenly Father to put this principle into practice that he simply has to essentially move on without her in practicing it. And then that sets us up then to have a discussion about whether there's fidelity and integrity in that, and that perhaps would be where the debate occurs. 
I don't know that there's a whole lot of debate in that I would acknowledge, A, that Joseph had to ask Emma. I would acknowledge, B, that Joseph... Um, that, that Joseph screwed up a number of times and that Joseph kept marriages from Emma, whether or not that was consistent with Section 132, uh, whether he was justified under Section 132 to do that. Uh, I don't know that there's a point necessarily to arguing that because I would acknowledge the possibility, maybe even the probability, that there were marriages that Joseph Smith engaged on that were in violation of that, that Joseph made mistakes in that regard. The problem, though, with that is that we don't have enough data to be able to specifically pinpoint whether or not that happened. Uh, so much of the data with regard to plural marriage it w was, I, I don't know if it's destroyed or was just never even written down because it was being kept secret and all of that kind of stuff. So we really do not know the extent of the dynamic between Joseph and Emma. And, and what I, what I tell people when I talk about this, this with them is that if you want to believe the very worst about Joseph Smith, uh, the data allows you to do that. I don't think it compels you to do that, but it allows you to do that. If you want to believe the very best about Joseph Smith, the data allows you to do that. I don't think it compels you to do that, but it allows you to do that. I mean, so, 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 uh, there are those who can make, who, who try to make the case. Uh, there's a blogger over at Millennial Star named Meg Stout who's written a book called Faithful Joseph that is actually worth reading, is very interesting. But she, ins he ins she insists that Joseph did not have sexual relations with anybody and that plural marriage was entirely spiritual and he only had sex with Emma. Uh, that's essentially the position of the uh, community of Christ who try to say he didn't even engage in plural marriage and they all point to the evidence that Joseph didn't father any children with any of his plural wives. And he fathered nine children with Emma and was clearly very fertile. And yet uh, none of these women had, so, so clearly sex was not the primary component of all of these relationships. So, so what you end up having to do is, is make assumptions about Joseph and his character. And, if you want to assume that Joseph was a rake and that Joseph was lying to, to Emma, uh, the data allows you to do that. Uh, I look at all of this and I see Joseph as being terribly, terribly conflicted and struggling to keep a commandment that he doesn't know how to keep and not being sure what to do and, and flailing back and forth. Uh, you know, the, the amount of time between Fanny Alger his first, first plural wife and his next plural wife, you're looking at five years at least by most, by most estimates. Uh, this is, I, I do not see Joseph being somebody who's like, this is something I really want to do. This is something I want to dive into. I think it's something he tried to run away from as long as he possibly could. Uh, and if you believe Joseph is a fraud, then that explanation doesn't make any sense. But I, I don't, I think Joe, I think the evidence is very compelling that Joseph believed in his own prophetic mission. And I believe the evidence is compelling that Joseph believed that plural marriage was an essential part of that. And I think the evidence is compelling that he didn't want to do it, that he didn't like doing it, that he didn't really know how to do it. 
which is why I think he botched it on a number of different occasions. Good, good. Um, let's finish on this note, which is, so I think we're in agreement that the, the data is messy. We're never going to know exactly what's going on. I think we're in agreement that it appears Emma, Emma was kept in the dark about many, and I want to I even say most, and I think you'd agree with that, most of the marriages, at least initially, uh, Emma seems by the data to be in the dark about. Are, are we good so far? Well, uh, well, I can argue many versus most. I, I, we, we really, really don't know. Right. And, and the fact that Emma becomes sort of an unreliable narrator of polygamy later on in her life. Right. And with the interviews with McClellan. Yeah. Well, she, she, she later insists that Joseph was never a polygamist. Right. To her son, Joseph Smith III. And so you start saying, okay, well, so, I mean, we, we do not know enough about the dynamic for me to be able to make any kind of judgment there. My, 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 what I believe is that Joseph, uh, that, that Joseph was able to persuade Emma at different times that polygamy was of the Lord and that Emma wavered back and forth between believing whether it was and whether it wasn't. And so how many of the marriages coincided with Emma's support versus Emma's wavering? We do not have any idea. So I, I, I would push back against most, but I will concede many. How's that? Okay, great. That's perfect. So that said, um, my understanding is that there are lots of documentation of Joseph sharing with other members of the church that he was under pressure by an angel of the Lord to stop hesitating on the principle and to put it into action. It is. Is that fair? It is not fair okay. to say that Joseph went to women and said, if you don't marry me, an angel's going to kill me, which is how Jeremy Runnels represents that data point in the CES letter. I don't think we have any compelling documentation that that's the case. When Joseph talks about the angel with the drawn sword, he's talking about the angel with the drawn sword taking his life if he does not enter into plural marriage as a principle. We do not have any evidence that I am aware of that Joseph Smith ever said to a woman, if you don't marry me, this angel's going to kill me. And that's the way that that data point has been used by critics of polygamy. And I think it's been used incorrectly. Um, all right, so I would have to go back and look at the quotes on that. I'll, I'll concede that at the moment um, because I think I need to be more familiar with some of the quotes, and I'll do that in the meantime before we get to the next part. That said, you, I assume you would agree that there is language in Section 132 that for the wife who does not give permission in the law of Sarah, that there is a there is a scripture that says that she will be destroyed. Destroyed, right? Yeah, and and that seems to be the very thing you're wanting to distance yourself from with Joseph and the angel with the sword. Seems to be the the language that we can't distance ourselves from in section one thirty two towards the first wife. Well, I I don't want to distance myself from the language. I want to define the language. What does it mean to be destroyed? Uh, I mean, is this a threat that God is going to send a lightning bolt and kill Emma Smith? I don't think anybody in the eighteen in the eighteen forties uh, would have would have uh, would have interpreted that way. Uh, I think what it means in the context of the Revelation is the kind of destruction that Joseph was really 
preoccupied with was the destruction of lineage, the destruction of posterity. The plural marriage and section 132, you know, it's always interesting to me that people, well, let's get rid of section 132. And I thought, if you get rid of section 132, you got to get rid of uh, families together forever. You've got to get rid of all of the doctrines that we teach in primary, all of which are rooted in section 132. We skip over polygamy, but the whole idea of ceilings and eternal families and all of the things that we have now made the center of our worship, a great deal of them are found in section 132. I don't think you can toss section 132 out and and uh, do so in any way that's theologically consistent. So the whole idea of destruction is the idea that you will no longer have the kind of internal increase that was, I think, the preeminent preoccupation of Joseph Smith in the final years of his life. Uh, the later revelations that he has all are sort of preoccupied with this idea of, of what happens to us, that, that, that the, the family line and lineage is the most precious asset that we can acquire immortality. And that's the purpose of plural marriage. And that's the purpose of all of this. And if you're not willing to participate in this, Emma, you're not going to have any of that. And he uses the strongest possible word he can use to describe that experience, which is destroyed. Uh, but we look at that in the 21st century. And if someone says, I'm going to destroy you, we assume they're going to show up at our doorstep with a machine gun and kill us. And I don't think this is a death threat. I don't think this destroy doesn't mean that. And so we have to determine what it, what it is that it means. And I don't think I'm, I'm trying to soften the word because I think that word had a great deal of power and a great deal of terror attached to it. And I think Joseph felt that terror himself. And he was saying, look, our, you know, our, our eternal salvation depends upon our eternal increase. And all of that's going to be destroyed if you do not accept this doctrine. So I think that's what that means. Yeah. And and so now we're going to risk going off into the weeds a touch, which is, is there a level of, and, and man, this gets difficult because my gut feels like there's a level of manipulation involved when we threaten people with a loss of their salvation if they don't participate in this one thing, which you, which we're granting, Joseph utilized, and I want to say even held over Emma's head and practiced inappropriately at times. In other words, if we grant that Joseph didn't operate at all times in a healthy way in enacting this principle, then what we're saying is that Emma then has this spiritual thread over her head. Now, again, we can debate the strength of it, but on some level, you're at least acknowledging that she had some loss of salvific blessings if she didn't cave in to Joseph practicing a principle which you acknowledge he did at times in hurtful, unhealthy ways. That feels, and again, I acknowledge my presentism, um, it feels like there's a level of manipulation there and we're placing that in the voice of Heavenly Father and I'm deeply uncomfortable when we when a male goes to a female and says, God, talk to me. Right. And we need to do this thing and if we don't, and by the way, 
in hindsight, I'm going to do this very unhelpful, you know, in a very unhealthy way. Right. And, and if you don't obey and do this thing, you're going to lose some extension of your exaltation. Uh, I don't blame you for feeling it. That makes me uncomfortable too. Uh, there, there's, there's no way around that, 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 I, I, what what I'm trying to offer is not an excuse; it's an explanation. And and I think I, I, I mean I, I look at it. I, I think the problem becomes in, in that. Okay, so we're dealing here. This revelation. Let me defend. Let me defend you for just oh, a second, hey. which is to say, which is to say that if God truly does believe that obedience to principles in the gospel really do affect whether we get to live with him or not, on some level, he has to have the space to declare to us what those rules are and for us to then obey them or not obey them. And in any one of those circumstances, we could see that as manipulative, like, hey, if you don't keep the word of wisdom, then this happens. And you're like, ah, that's not fair. How dare you hold that over my head? Like on some level, we could debate that everywhere. Although I think in this instance, it's stronger and it feels more unhealthy. Well, um, does that make sense? It does. It, it, that the tension in Mormon theology between these kinds of declarative condemnations and universalism is all over the place. And I, I, I think it's Doctrine and Covenant section 9, where the Lord starts playing, uh, you know, starts parsing the phrase eternal punishment and endless punishment. And he says that uh, the, these are terms that are, used, that are more expressed than others, that it may work together for my glory. But endless punishment just means that I am endless and that, but it doesn't mean that the punishment will have no end. And I am eternal, so eternal punishment is my punishment, but it doesn't mean that you're going to go into eternal punishment and never come out. You know, and, and I remember even as a kid reading that and going, wow, that's, uh, <laughs> you know, those are some interesting word games here. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I, the, the Lord is essentially literally trying to scare the hell out of people by, th by scaring them with hell, but at the same time promising them that, it, that in the end that uh, there is an almost universal salvation, that even the lowest kingdom of glory defies all comprehension because it's so magnificent. So, so you know, th that kind of attention, I think, exists in Mormon theology, and I think it's supposed to exist. I think the Lord wants it to exist. And I look at this particular revelation, the history of DNC 132. My understanding is that uh, it, Hiram said, "Well, give me a revelation. I'll go take it to Emma, and then she'll have to agree." And so that, that's when Joseph finally decided to write it down. And he eventually says, "You don't know Emma as well as I do. I, I knew that this wouldn't have any effect on her." And so I, I, I think what you're dealing with there in this particular, it's, or at least not the desired effect. Not, not the desired effect. Yeah, it's it's it, yeah, it's it's going to make things worse, and and I think it probably did. Uh, but uh, you're dealing with a very specific relationship between Joseph and Emma, and I think the mistake has has come in that in that people have taken that and given it a much more universal application than it was intended to have. 
for instance, I don't think you can read that revelation and say that any woman that does not enter into plural marriage will be destroyed. That's a specific thing saying Emma needs to be told that if she's not going to do this, she's going to be destroyed in in this kind of sense. Yeah, there's some level of the parts of this revelation being private to Emma specifically and not to the world at large. Right, and and... And in all of the first-hand accounts that we have of Joseph's plural wives, uh, you cannot find, as far as I know, Joseph going in and making threats to them along the lines of DNC 132, telling them that if they don't get married, they're going to be destroyed. There was a columnist that I wrote a big thing in my blog about this, so I'm, I, 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 there's one where she talks about the gate being closed forever if they don't make a decision quickly. That's yeah, Lucy, Walker. Lucy Walker. Okay. And so I went, well, that's scary. And I went back and looked at it. And essentially what he was saying was, you need to decide whether or not you're going to marry me. I need to know quickly. And, and even after he says that, the gate being closed, this opportunity is going to end. She says, oh, I'm not going to marry you. And rather than say, well, you're damned for all eternity, Joseph says, I promise you that you will receive spiritual witness that this is the right thing to do. God bless you, and walks away. And then the next day she gets this dramatic spiritual witness and comes back and says, yes, I want to marry you. Uh, so it, the, the way it's been portrayed is that Joseph has gone to everybody with his own version of, of DNC 132 and said, you better marry me or you're going to hell. And that is not what happened. The first-person accounts of the plural wives almost all involve a, an initial revulsion at the idea, they're disgusted by it, and then a personal testimony and a personal witness that comes independent of Joseph. They don't involve legions of threats from Joseph, you better marry me or this angel with a drawn sword is going to kill me or kill you. You're going to be destroyed if you don't marry me. Uh, and that's kind of how it's come to be portrayed, and I think the first-person accounts that we have from, from the plural wives fly in the face of that. Perfect. And this is where we're going to have to end, because I've got to open my store here in two minutes. All right, sir. But I, th I thought, again, great conversation, and I'm excited to pick up where well, we left off I just in the next want, one. I really don't want you to feel like we're, we're fighting here. I don't, want, I, don't, I don't feel like this is combat. I really enjoy yeah. this. Yeah, if you go back to the way I worded that in episode two, it was if there were people who were looking at it that way, that's how they would judge okay. it. That's not how I see it. Um, so so yeah, anyway, I just just so you know, I see this as a friendly conversation, and I feel like people are going to go like, look, there, there's a lot of common ground here, and they're making space for each other on the ground that's not common, and that feels like a healthy way that the church could use as a model for what's appropriate and not appropriate in these kinds of conversations and how it could better minister to those who experience uh, um, a faith crisis right. or a faith transition. Right. So no, I think this is all great. Um, so let's pick up next time to the listeners. We'll pick up with polygamy and uh, keep the conversation going with Jim Bennett. Jim, you're just, again, appreciate all the time you've given us and, and these conversations I think are invaluable. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I Thank you very much. I think what you're doing here is wonderful. Perfect. I look forward to the next one. All right. Okay, have See a you. great day.
is gone.